There's a movie that came out toward the end of 2012. It was nominated for many Academy Awards. It was a movie about President Abraham Lincoln. I've not seen the movie. I'd like to, just I've heard many good things about it. And I wonder if there are certain quotes from Abraham Lincoln that are actually said in the movie. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure at some point in the movie we'll hear him say, four score and seven years ago. And perhaps we'll hear his quote, Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side, but rather that we are on God's side. It's a good quote. But the one I'm wondering if, if they'll have in the movie is a quote. I, I think I first saw this quote on Facebook. And, and I don't know if you're familiar with this, if you've ever seen this, but Abraham Lincoln was purported to have said, if you read it on the internet, it must be true. Well, obviously, Abraham Lincoln did not say that. Somebody was having a little bit of fun rewriting history when they put that on the internet. And there are those who would like to rewrite history and tell us that Christ Jesus never rose from the dead. But the word of God tells us something different, something quite precious, something quite wonderful, something that causes us to be here this morning and causes Christians likewise around the world to be gathered this and every Sunday. And we read about that something in Mark 16, verses 1 through 8, which serve as our sermon text this morning. So please follow along as I read from Mark 16, verses 1 through 8, remembering that this indeed is the inspired word of God. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and, and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, once again we come before you in prayer, rejoicing for Easter morning, rejoicing that our Lord Jesus Christ has indeed risen from the dead. What a wonderful message that is. What a, a beautiful truth that is. May we be grasped and gripped with the same astonishment and amazement and excitedness that must have been present in those 
disciples and in those women who were the very first eyewitnesses on that first Easter Sunday. Warm our hearts with love toward you for the grace that you have shown us. And might we give you glory as we hear your word preached here today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what is Easter all about anyway? What is Easter all about? For some, it's about eggs and bunnies. For others yet, it's about bonnets and pretty outfits. There's nothing wrong with that, I guess. For others yet, it's about beautiful lilies like the ones that adorn our sanctuary. And the coming of spring. I guess that's actually not too far off in a way. For what is the coming of spring but the coming of new life after a season of death? Of course, that is what Easter is all about. Not new life to the earth after a season of death, although that points us to the ultimate resurrection, the true resurrection that we celebrate here on Easter. We, of course, talk about the resurrection of Christ Jesus, our Lord, the actual bodily resurrection of a human being who was also the Son of God, who died on a cross on Calvary 2,000 years ago. He was dead and buried, and yet he rose from the dead to new life. The resurrection, what a wonderful thing it is. It is good news precisely because death is such bad news. We all realize this, don't we? Death is a terrible thing. It is, the Bible tells us, the last enemy. We don't need to be Bible scholars to not like death. It's pretty much a human condition. Woody Allen has famously said, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. We all want to avoid death. And that's right. Because death is an enemy. The ultimate enemy. It is something altogether wrong. And that is what makes the resurrection such good news. For it is the defeat of death. Death itself dies in the resurrection. And so the resurrection brings good news to all situations. This morning I want to look at, first of all, how it brings good news to the confusion of devastation. It brings good news in the astonishment of of the unexpected, and perhaps most importantly, it brings good news to us in the depths of despair. First of all, in the confusion of devastation, let us remember what actually had happened. Try to go back. We, we become so familiar with the Easter story that it, it just kind of is a, a trite thing that we say, oh, well, good, that's wonderful, but let's remember what happened. Let's put ourselves in the place of those disciples who were following Jesus, those women who were these first eyewitnesses. It's easy for us to celebrate today, but let us remember where they were. Some 36 hours earlier, they had watched their Lord and Savior, brutally murdered on a cross. I imagine that Friday night they did not sleep very well, having witnessed this gruesome act, this terrible thing, and probably not on Saturday either. Their lives were devastated at this moment. 
They were devastated. Remember, they, they didn't expect resurrection. We read it now and we know that the resurrection is coming, but they clearly did not expect that that would occur. And so in the midst of their grief and their sorrowness and sorrow and their, their weariness and their, their disappointment, just imagine how devastated they were. And we see that when the Sabbath was passed in verse 1, that Mary Magdalene married the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. This was an act of, of honor that they were bringing to Jesus. You see the crucifixion had happened on Friday and, and the Sabbath began at sundown on Friday night and, and so the crucifixion occurred by the time they got him down off the cross and, and to the tomb there was not time to properly anoint his body as was the custom. And so out of love and loyalty and respect these women after the Sabbath had passed are returning now with spices to anoint his body. But still they're racked with this devastation of what has happened. And we can see it in, in verse 3. Is they say to one another as they're on their way there, oh, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? See, they've, they've gotten this plan. We're going to go do this. We're going to head out and, and anoint his body like, like should happen. But it never even occurred to them that there was this stone. The world was shaken and, and they hadn't even thought about it. I'm the kind of person who, who is a little bit impulsive perhaps and, and, and I'm alright with just kind of let's just go and we'll kind of figure it out when we get there. But you would think that they would have thought about this stone. I mean these stones are five, six feet in diameter, hundreds of pounds in weight laying against the front of the tomb so that there is great friction against the tomb making it extremely hard to move. They hadn't even thought, oh yeah, there's this barrier. We're not going to be able to get in to see Jesus. We're not going to be able to get to him. It hadn't even occurred to them in the midst of their devastation. And if you think about it, their devastation isn't really the only devastation that we should read into this story. We should be devastated ourselves. Because what has brought them to the tomb, what has brought them is the fact that Jesus is dead, a perfectly righteous man, a perfectly innocent man, a man who committed no wrong whatsoever. And yet he had been put to death. And why had that happened? Why had that happened? Ultimately it happened because of me and because of you. Because of our sin. That is what placed him on the tree. It is our sins that drove those nails through his arms and through his feet and placed him there on that cross. It is our sin that killed a righteous man. And this is a devastating truth. What brings us comfort, of course, is the fact that he did not stay dead, but indeed rose from the dead and lives even today. And so we might go on. Otherwise, there, there would be no way to get past this. It was the most horrible thing that ever occurred. And yet out of it came the most beautiful thing that ever occurred. For our forgiveness hinges on it. And so Jesus rose from the dead. It is admittedly, truly astonishing. And these first eyewitnesses were no less astonished than we ought to be. And we see here in the astonishment of the unexpected, there is good news that penetrates. Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled 
back and entering into the tomb, they saw a young man, we're told, dressed in white. If we look at the other Gospels, we see that this young man was actually an angel and that it is he who rolled the stone away. Now, he rolled the stone away, not so much so that Jesus could get out, but so that the eyewitnesses could get in and see that the tomb was empty, to see that Jesus was indeed risen. And we read in verse 5 that they were alarmed, understandably so. I would be alarmed too. That's a natural reaction. And so this angel says to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Do not be alarmed. Do not be alarmed. A dead man is alive. An angel is speaking to me. How can I not help? How can I help it? How can I not be alarmed? It is an alarming thing. It is an amazing thing, an astonishing thing. Stop and consider. Jesus was really dead. Actually dead. Every bit as much as dead as, as anybody we've ever seen die. He was dead. There were eyewitnesses. There was the Roman centurions there, the, the, the executioners. These are professional executioners. They know what they're doing. If they bring down somebody from the cross that's not dead, that means they get to die in his place. They were sure he was dead. There's Joseph of Arimathea who, who buried him. He saw him. He was a witness. He was dead. There are these very same women that were present at the crucifixion who had gone to the tomb when he was buried and now are returning. They had seen him. He was dead. And he was buried. But now the tomb was empty. It's astonishing. The tomb was empty. That's something that even the Jewish leaders of the day recognized. Matthew 28 tells us that. The tomb was empty. That is a historical fact. That's not debated. The tomb was empty. Now the question is, why was it empty? How did it get empty? Of course, that's where everything hinges. Now the Jewish leaders of the day were told, made up a story that, that the disciples had stolen his body. Now it's not very likely true if you think about it that that would happen. First of all, these disciples, we remember, are largely a bunch of cowards who have hidden in fear. And so the idea is that they somehow came and overpowered the Roman guard that were guarding the tomb on penalty of death if anything happened. They overpowered him and somehow got the body out and then hid the body, I guess. And then what they did was they spent the rest of their lives perpetuating this truth. Ultimately, being persecuted for their stubborn insistence that Jesus lived again. And not one of them ever fessed up to this grand, elaborate scheme that they had concocted. Ten of the eleven actually dying martyrs' deaths to maintain this truth. The other one, John, dying as an exile on the Isle of Patmos. Persecuted. It's not very likely that this story is true. Even if we don't accept the word of God as the word of God, 
There is no logic to this, that they would have done this. So there's the theory that perhaps Jesus wasn't really dead, you know, that he just appeared to be dead. And they call this the swoon theory, that somehow he swooned and they put him in the cool of the tomb and while he was there, he was suddenly resuscitated. Well, not only is that highly unlikely beyond any degree of probability that that could happen because of the tortures that were inflicted upon him in his flogging and subsequent crucifixion. But even if somehow beyond miracle of miracles, and frankly that's an even greater miracle that that could happen, he still needed to push away this giant stone that was keeping him in the tomb in this weakened state, overpower the armed guards, and disappear off on his own. That's not what happened. That couldn't be what happened. You see, what happened was what the Word of God says happened. This was not some story that the disciples made up so that they could start some new religion that they could be the heroes of. For if it were, they would not have written this story the way they wrote it. (laughs) Because they are anything but heroic in this story. They are fearful. They are hiding. They are betrayers and deniers. They are slow, not able to figure out what Jesus has said, even though he has clearly told them time and time again. Who would write a story saying, follow us because we are like that? It would make no sense. And furthermore, they would have never made women to be the first eyewitnesses at the tomb. The eyewitness testimony of a woman in a Jewish community at that time would not even have been accepted in a court of law. Culturally, it was just not considered to be reliable whatsoever. In fact, the Greek philosopher Celsus argued that Christianity could not be believed primarily because of this reason. And many people followed him in that thought can't trust those women if you were going to make this story up that's not the way you'd do it you would do it anyway but that it's because they didn't make the story up they believed that jesus had risen from the dead it's because he actually had we can look to non-christian sources like like flavius josephus who was a historian a Jewish historian, a non-Christian historian. This is what he had to say. He spoke of this man, Jesus. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day. As the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. You see, Jesus appeared to the disciples. We didn't read that today in our text, but that's what happens next is he appears to the disciples. He shows up physically in their presence, bidding them, touch me. Feel my wounds. See see my wounds. He gathers together with them. He eats with them. He prepares a meal for them. This is a physical resurrection. Seven times in the Gospels there are sightings of Jesus. Five sightings are mentioned in Paul's letters, including one to 500 people. Acts 1 makes it clear that for 40 days after his resurrection, he appeared to the disciples time and time and time and time again. It is presented as historical fact. Jesus 
rose from the dead. Maybe you hear this and you are astonished. You say, I, I, I just have a hard time believing that. Well, whether you believe it or not does not change the reality that it actually occurred. Jesus died and Jesus rose. It doesn't change the fact that it actually occurred, whether you believe it or not, but it does change something. It changes everything for you if you believe or do not believe. For if you believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead, and if you place your faith in him, if you trust in him, if you trust in him alone for salvation as the payment for your sins, then that moves you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You are no longer a child of wrath, but rather a child of God. You are no longer a slave to sin, but rather our heirs with Christ. You don't need to hammer out every question. You don't need to have everything figured out. This is the question that matters. Will I take God at his word? You don't need to have enormous faith, the greatest faith that anybody ever had. You just need to have just enough faith to latch on to these truths, to grip onto them, to trust in God. You don't need to have every theological point figured out. You don't need to have exactly proper theology on every last detail. You simply need to call out to Christ for salvation. And then we realize that the resurrection is not an end in itself, but it is a call to action. It calls us to action. It, it's, it's something that, that prompts us to something. It prompts us to a certain type of living. And it prompted them specifically, we see here, to tell others of this wonderful truth. They're to go and tell the disciples. We see here how that means good news for those who are in the depths of despair. In verse 7, go tell his disciples and Peter. In my mind, those are two of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. Go tell his disciples and Peter. The last time we saw Peter, remember it was Thursday night. And he was, we were told, weeping bitterly. For he had three times denied his Savior. He had three times denied his God. And he was weeping bitterly. He denied he even knew Jesus, even to a servant girl. So great was his fear. So great was his sin. Imagine the despair that he was enduring. Imagine he who was so sure of himself, so self-confident to have failed so miserably. Some say, you know, it doesn't really matter whether Jesus actually rose from the dead bodily. What matters is that he rose in my heart and that he inspires me to live my life a certain way, and that I follow his teachings. I wonder what Peter would say if you said that to him. Actually, I don't wonder at all. I'm pretty confident I know what Peter would say. Peter, who'd sworn that he would go to prison and even the grave with Jesus, only to three times deny him. Peter, who the Gospel of John tells us that three times was prompted by his Savior to proclaim his love and three times was commissioned to tend to the flock of the great shepherd. Peter, 
who at Pentecost would preach of Christ's victory over death and would see 3,000 people come to faith. Peter, who had maintained the historicity of Jesus' physical resurrection for his entire life until he himself was crucified for proclaiming this truth. My guess is that Peter's response would be the same as that of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. If Christ has not been raised, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Why? Because if Christ has not been raised, then we are still in our sins. We're still in our sins if he has not been raised. But by raising Jesus from the dead, God declared his satisfaction with the payment that Christ had made for our sins. He was pleased. He was satisfied because of what Jesus had done. And the resurrection serves as vindication of that fact. Just yesterday I went to get dinner for our family at Qdoba. I love Qdoba. They know me personally now. We go in there all the time. I'm uh, in there too often probably. But they have these great deals where if you buy a certain number, you get something free. Yesterday we got a, a free kid's meal thrown in if you buy an adult. They do a lot of these free. I'm not meaning to be a commercial here, but... We go there a fair amount. I walk through the line. I'm always chatting with the people because I know them. They know me. I get to the end. They swipe my card, my membership card, to add my points to it. And I take my food. I walk away. And he says to me, wait, wait, wait a second. You, you didn't pay. <laughs> I said, oh, <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> I felt kind of embarrassed, and I gave him my credit card. Sure enough, he swiped it. He gave me a receipt. And uh, I said, I guess that's why I didn't have a receipt, because I didn't pay. (laughs) And we chuckled, and I walked away. And you know what would have happened if 20 seconds later he said, Excuse me, you haven't paid. What would I have done? I would have shown him my receipt. I would have taken out the receipt. I said, Hey, no, no, remember? I just paid. I've got this receipt here. It says it costs this much. It says... I paid that much. The debt is finished. I'm not paying you anymore. I don't need to pay you anymore. It would be unjust for you to ask me for any more. I have a receipt. The resurrection of Jesus serves as our receipt. We deserve death and hell and condemnation. But Jesus bore that penalty for us on the cross. He has paid our debt. And through the resurrection, that payment has been vindicated. God is satisfied. And the resurrection is our receipt. So, Christian, if you are ever, ever doubting where you stand with God, if you are ever wondering if he could love you, if you are ever wondering how a sinner like you could have a place with him, pull out your receipt. Look to the empty tomb and remember that Christ Jesus not only died for you, but he rose from the dead. Tell the disciples and tell Peter. That's why it was such good news for Peter. Because he was so so distraught, he was despairing. His sin was so great and so is ours. So is ours. And yet, Jesus doesn't 
turn to Peter in anger and bitterness. He does not write Peter off as one he cannot use. But rather he goes to the cross for him. There is grace for Peter and there is grace for us. And what does that mean for us? Then there must be grace not only pouring into our lives, but as we said on Thursday night, we must be not just receptacles of grace, but also conduits of grace, so that the grace that God pours into our lives pours out of our lives into the lives of others. We offer others the kind of forgiveness that Christ Jesus has given us. He has so loved us that we must love others. We've gone through a difficult time at this church. It's been a rocky road. There's no question about that. I'm not saying something people are unaware of here. It's time to turn the page. It's time to move forward. It's time to forgive as we've been forgiven. It's time to show the kind of sacrificial love that sometimes hurts. And then move forward. It's time to say, yes, there have been wrong things in the past. I have been wronged. We have been wronged. You have been wronged. All of us have been wronged. But whatever wrongs have been done to us, they pale in comparison to the wrongs that we have done to a holy God. And he has forgiven us. Therefore, we must forgive. There is forgiveness available for us in Christ Jesus. There is redemption available for us in Christ Jesus. There is reconciliation available for us in Christ Jesus. There is resurrection available for us in Christ Jesus. And so let us be a church that embodies resurrection, that rejoices in resurrection. One commentator says, without the key of faith, which is the means of interpretation, even the resurrection would be opaque. And so we all come to the resurrection, we all see it, and we respond in different ways. Some of us are sitting here now. We look at the empty tomb and we say, so what? So what? Who cares? doesn't matter to me. If that's where you are today, my prayer for you is that God would, by his grace, work in your heart in such a way that he would remove the blinders from your eyes, that he would give you new life where there is death, that he would remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and that you would realize the beauty of Christ's love for us. Others here believe, yes, indeed, that happened. And I trust in Jesus, kind of. But it doesn't really mean a lot to my everyday life. To you, I say, yes, it does. It means everything. If this is true, and I tell you on the authority of the word of God, it is, then it means everything. And then there are those of us who have walked with Jesus for 10, 30, 70 years. For those of us who have done that, I pray that as we look at the empty tomb today, we might be reminded of his great grace toward us. That though we despised him, he loved us. That though we were enemies, he made us his children. That though we were still sinners, Christ died 
for us. May we see his grace more clearly. May we love him more deeply. May we proclaim him more boldly and exalt him and him alone this Easter and every day to the glory of his holy name. Amen. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word given to us, for the encouragement that it brings, the truth that it teaches, and for the fact that it is indeed, as you promised, living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. We pray that indeed it might, as we have heard it preached, stay with us, penetrate our hearts, and cause us, wherever we are, to move closer to you, For your glory and our good, we ask it in Jesus' name.